The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Certainly this sort of evidence could support what that funding mechanism should look like and the assessment of contributions. I'm Heyman Hahn, Associate Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 21st, 2022. Over the weekend, the United Nations Climate Summit, or COP27, went into overtime as nations came to an historic agreement to establish a loss and damage fund. This fund is meant to give resources to countries who have experienced the worst effects of climate change. Some like to think of it as climate reparations. There are a lot of factors that might have created the momentum for this historic agreement to go through after many years. A particularly interesting one is that it's becoming more and more difficult for big emitters like the United States to deny their role in contributing to climate change. New scientific studies in particular have been pivotal in creating a pretty unimpeachable basis for climate responsibility. But just because science can verify certain realities does not mean that it's a straight path forward for climate justice. That's why, on this episode, I wanted to merge the legal and policy perspective with the science perspective to get a sense of what factors are coming together to achieve climate justice. Karen Sokol joined me. She's a professor at Loyola University New Orleans College of Law and a fellow at Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Chris Callahan also joined me. He's a PhD candidate at Dartmouth College who co-produced a scientific study that actually informed negotiations on loss and damage at COP27. We recorded this conversation before countries made the decision to create a loss and damage fund. But many of the issues we discuss within it remain live questions, especially since the agreement that was reached this weekend did not include details of how the fund will actually work. And because there are ways that the principles behind climate reparations are being manifested beyond just the loss and damage fund itself. This is the Lawfare Podcast, Karen Sokol and Chris Callahan on climate justice, the interactions of science, law, and policy. To get us started, I'd like to talk about what we mean when we say climate reparations. Karen, if you could give us a general overview of what the international agreements and international efforts towards climate action have looked like over the years and how they incorporate climate reparations on a high level. Sure. So very, very broadly, you can 
think of necessary climate measures as falling into three categories, one of which is mitigation, that is reduction of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. The second is is adaptation. When there hasn't been enough mitigation, then you have to adapt to a changed climate to be safe, which is the stage we're at now. And unfortunately, we're also at a stage where mitigation and adaptation have been deferred long enough that there's a lot of what is termed loss and damage. Reparation is the connotations of it in ordinary language um, mm. is is really tied to some sort of responsibility. That is, someone is responsible for repairing those harms. Although as a factual matter, that's certainly the case in a climate disrupted world that has not really taken off within international climate law. So to parse that out a bit, the United Nations Framework Convention did recognize that there's actually differentiated responsibility for climate disruption and thus for the harms of climate disruption. And it it has this principle in it called the common but differentiated responsibility principle. And the idea is, hey, parties to the framework convention on climate change, this is among the principles that you need to operationalize in binding climate agreements. The first one, it was open for signature in 97 and entered into force in 2005. That's a Kyoto Protocol. And it, it did make some steps toward operationalizing the CBDR principle in its mitigation obligations. So there are specific emission reduction targets for wealthy industrialized nations tied to their historic responsibility and their GDP. And developing nations that are the least responsible, their obligations were conditioned upon the industrialized nations not only meeting their mitigation obligations, but also providing them with the technology and funding necessary to respond and to adapt. Now, before the Framework Convention had even entered into force, Vanuatu, on behalf of the Alliance of Small Island States, had proposed a provision for loss and damage that would be tied to historical responsibility in terms of the assessment of paying. So they essentially wanted a mechanism for loss and damage added early on. The U.S. and other high-emitting nations strongly resisted this and succeeded in getting it not operationalized in the Kyoto Protocol. So the Kyoto Protocol, after it entered into force, it became apparent that the U.S. was never going to ratify it. There was strong opposition by the fossil fuel industry, as well as a lot of policymakers, and it culminated in a Senate resolution that remains on the books, opposing any ratification of a climate agreement that recognized this undifferentiated responsibility. That led to negotiations of the Paris Agreement to try to get the U.S. on board. And a result was a watering down of the common but differentiated responsibility 
liability provisions in the Paris Agreement. So the operative provisions are essentially a unilateral pledging system, what's known as the Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDC. So the the obligations are very different. They're undifferentiated in a sense because all parties are responsible for preparing these unilateral pledges. There is a provision in the Paris Agreement in which the parties recognize the importance of averting, minimizing, and addressing loss and damage associated with the adverse effects of climate change. The U.S. insisted in the decision text that that be qualified, that it does not involve or provide a basis for any liability or compensation, but it's important that that's there and the parties are obligated to work toward establishing a fund, which had been the subject of negotiations at successive COPs, including COP26 and COP27, to establish a funding mechanism. There's been a, a, a sharp divide between the, the largely the U.S., some other developed nations, and developing countries about what that that fund would look like, and even really getting it going. There's been a lot of dialogue, really undermining it, and it looks like that's continuing to play out in Sharm el Sheikh. Right. So where we are now is that countries have agreed to address loss and damage in theory, but how it would be financed and by whom is one of the big questions that parties are trying to iron out. For instance, China is a tricky example, right? Because they're both an emitter, but also considered by the UN as a developing country. How do questions like that get decided? Is this a question that science could help us with? So that's a great question. And I I think that one is is a policy question. I mean, science could certainly in various ways, I mean, depending on how you do that attribution of emissions piece to China, you could come out differently. Um, in terms of a policy decision, what, what I would say, and it's not like anybody asked me, but what I would say is that it should be tied to historical emissions. And in terms of responsibility, it's those high historical emitters that should be the ones funding the most, that that's what funding obligations should be tied to. It's true that economies such as China right now, you're really seeing that with this COP27. You see, I almost see the U.S. and other developed nations using that to divide developing countries on this issue. And that, to me, that's just another stalling tactic and that a problem. But again, this isn't based on the science. This is, this is, this is a policy question. Right. So as we've said, a lot of this is a policy or political question, and especially political insofar as we're trying to convince these nations to pay into this fund. But it seems like there's a good way for science to help inform this kind of conversation, especially in trying to identify who's really responsible for climate change, warming, and the downstream effects. Chris actually, with his co-author Justin Mankin, has produced some new science in this realm. Chris, could you talk about what your science shows and what exactly you try to do in your new study? Absolutely. I am going to do the annoying scientist thing where I caveat everything I say before I say it. And so 
<laughs> I suppose I should say that that to the extent that we can do science, it is useful, but ultimately these are political and legal discussions that will need to be sorted out in, in the international arena. And so that's just an important context for our work and, and recognizing that more information does not always solve a problem, but it is useful information to have. And so what we do is assess the contributions that individual countries have made to the economic damages from climate change. The way that we do this is by using computer simulations of the Earth system to simulate each individual emitting country's contribution to global temperature change by relating that global temperature change to local temperature change in another country. So for example, the United States emitting, producing warming, and that warming causing local warming in a place like Pakistan, and then using relationships between warming and economic outcomes that have been previously developed to assess how that local warming has influenced the economy of another country. So you have built counterfactual what this country X would have been able to advance in their GDP or how much their GDP would have advanced in absence of warming caused by country Y? Absolutely. The key issue here from the perspective of economic damages, at least the way that we look at it, is that many countries around the world that are lower income have seen their economies grow quite rapidly over the last several decades. Economic development has been quite substantial, especially in places in the global south. And what we show is not that these countries have yet been made poorer in absolute terms because of climate change, but that many of them simply would have grown faster without it. So we show that had the United States not emitted the greenhouse gases that it did over the course of the last 25 or 60 years, many countries in tropical regions would have experienced greater and more rapid economic growth than they did. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can can we go on a little bit of a tangent here and talk about how climate modeling works, how you get that kind of counterfactual data and how you create these kind of models? Absolutely. Climate modeling is a way of representing the Earth system in a computational framework. So we unfortunately cannot do comprehensive experiments on the Earth because we don't have a control group. Uh, we can't warm the Earth, see what happens, and then look at Earth 2 and see what would have happened had we not warmed up, though we are conducting a great planetary experiment in the form of, of global warming. So we instead we turn to computers and we build these big computational simulations of the climate where we divide the Earth up into boxes and we have energy and momentum and water and other things flowing between these boxes to simulate the circulation of the atmosphere, the circulation of the ocean and other things. And we can test, for example, if you take one of these simulations and you increase the greenhouse gas grasses in the atmosphere, what happens to the climate? And that gives us the ability to run experiments on the earth system that are not possible in another context. So this process and this effort has been ongoing for many decades, the people that developed the first really good climate models won the Nobel Prize in physics last year, actually, as a sort of key recognition of this effort. And these climate models have been used, including in the international arena, to support 
the efforts of something like the Framework Convention on Climate Change to assess human contributions to the climate. And so we have used climate models over the last several decades to say that the earth has warmed and that warming is due to human contributions and we would not have warmed without human contributions. That's a long running fact that we've known for a while. The details of how we do things are to simulate individual countries' contributions rather than thinking about global warming as a whole. And so we can take one of these simulations, run it to simulate the world that we did experience as close as we can get it, and then subtract out, for example, the United States' emissions over some time period, and then re-simulate the Earth and say, what would the world have looked like with and without the United States' emissions or any other emitting country? And that gets us an estimate of what that emitting country has contributed to global warming. Thanks for that. So Karen, how would this kind of data factor into, say, a climate case on the international level? First of all, how would a court look at this kind of information as evidence? In terms of of just more broadly, what you need if you allege legal violation and you need that causal nexus to the harm that you're seeking compensation for. And this is whether it's at the international level or or domestic level, that step that, that Chris discussed, so the IPCC has long been attributing human-caused fossil fuel emissions to climate change. And what Chris's study does is make all those those subsequent causal links. So getting from specific country emitter, and you can imagine that that could also be applied to companies as well. So their particular emissions to warming and then to impacts. So Chris's study was focused on economic damages. In terms of other pieces that that would be good to have would be things, other sorts of damages. So connecting warming to sea level rise or warming, the human-caused warming made that there's just a study came out that, that the African Sahel flooding was 80 times more likely as a result. So connecting that specific impacts then to not just economic damages, but Mm. potentially things like death caused by a heat wave or drought, those sort of things. So you can bring in some non-economic damages as well. If you really want to make the case for the full damages that have been caused. Additionally, what I'd like to see are potentially including not just reported country emissions, but also their military emissions, which are not, they're voluntarily reported within the Paris regime, and it's very spotty in terms of how that works. Things like methane leaks and releases, there's lots of studies that track those, but that aren't included in official reporting those would go towards showing more the full responsibility and the full measure of damages. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People By Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me.
now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Can countries currently take, say, information that Chris and his co-author, for instance, produce and bring a case like this to court? in the international level? So from the perspective of the Paris Agreement, certainly this sort of evidence could support what that funding mechanism should look like and the assessment of contributions. In terms of a case, there's no there's no way to to really allege a violation of the Paris Agreement. There are mechanisms at the international level, presuming that you have jurisdiction and admissibility is met, where you can bring allegations of, say, a treaty violation or another violation of international law to, for example, the International Court of Justice. That's very tricky with the Paris Agreement, given the nature of the obligations and that it's basically just a recognition of loss and damage and really a commitment to establish a fund. What you see happening with these cases is that litigants, plaintiffs are invoking other long-standing laws that at the international level, those are international climate obligations that are actually quite well developed. They just have largely yet to be applied in the climate context. And scientific studies such as as those that Chris just described that he undertook are critical evidence in establishing causation. There are several cases that are pending before the European Court of Human Rights the low-lying island states are planning to seek advisory opinions, basically to asking the International Court of Justice as well as the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea to answer. It's basically, I don't know exactly what the question is going to be yet, but it's going to be related to state responsibility with mm-hmm. respect to climate. So there could be more international norms that develop in light of that. So it seems like the current landscape for international climate reparations or loss and damage litigation isn't totally straightforward, but there are some climate cases happening at the national level, right? So, yeah, I I will say in a important piece of this, although there have been cases filed at the international level, and I think there will be more, if you, if you step back a bit, you see that there's a lot of domestic cases that do invoke international obligations and invoke the the Paris Agreement and the Framework Convention by way of interpreting other laws. And so at the domestic level, actually, just because international law doesn't really have an international judicial system, you have different courts with different jurisdiction, but they're largely based on state consent. Domestic courts have always been really important in enforcing state obligations. So that's just another level to to think about in terms of 
potentially seeing legal obligations related to to climate damages and where the sort of evidence such as these studies that we've been discussing might be really important. And so, for example, there's a case that has been brought by a Peruvian mountain guide who lives in a city in Peru that's at the foot of the melting Andes glacier. And the entire city is at high risk of a glacial outburst. And he is suing in German court the biggest power company, RWE, I believe it's the, the largest power company emitter in the EU. I'm almost certain of that. And is seeking, it's one of the few, most of the cases right now are seeking injunctive relief. This is one of the few cases that's been filed that's actually seeking damages. And mm. it's relying on attribution evidence of the sort that Chris undertook to establish the increased risk to his city of glacial outburst as a result of RWE's contribution to warming. So there are domestic cases, and particularly those ones that are transnational, where you have plaintiffs from the global south suing either corporate or governments in the the global north, I think could be really important just for starting to normalize the idea of differentiated responsibility and the full extent of the harms caused by a given entity, whether it's a corporation or a government, their emissions. So that, that the full effect of that to really incentivize what we need for climate law, both um, not only the idea that you're responsible for paying damages, but the cruelty of continuing to delay to respond, responding mitigation-wise. Right. So what I'm hearing is that these these national cases can be both an an enforcement mechanism or a realization method for these international agreements that may be a little bit more nebulous and less enforceable directly and also help build this larger case to create even more force to to make something like the the fund at the international level. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you can you can think of that this litigation as as potentially building a loose yet decentralized judicial architecture that can be part of of global climate governance and indeed any system of governance we recognize the the role of courts in enforcing the law in developing the law in enforcing essentially establishing the rule of law and decisions and arguments at the international level and at the domestic level dealing with similar issues, obligations related to climate and either obligations to reduce or obligations to repair loss and damage, they benefit from other decisions and then arguments and evidence sharpen over time. Chris saw a need for this to make all those causal links that these individual studies didn't. Um, and that was a result of just starting to understand this litigation and what was needed. And so there's there's going to be a back and forth and an, I think an iterative process over time that ultimately, hopefully, 
could serve to spur the development of recognition that loss and damage is an essential part of international climate policy and really just to get a push toward that in the Paris Agreement as well. But I do think that the litigation represents more broadly just a, an expansion of global climate governance that's, that's necessary. It sounds like there's a lot of science that could help build out those cases as well. Chris, what's your sense of how possible it is for scientists to help show these effects that Karen is talking about? Absolutely. It's a great question. I think it's a totally correct imperative. One of the things that we did is take a lot of existing work and assemble it. So the novelty of our work was not any individual piece, but just taking them and putting them together. So for example, the study that Karen mentioned about rainfall in the Sahel is a great example of something where we have a pretty good understanding of the physical process. We know that increases in temperature make extreme rainfall worse. When it rains, it's going to rain harder. The question then is, can you take that relationship and integrate it into a framework that links it back to an individual country's emissions? And the question is maybe. It's not been tried yet. It's something that is absolutely interesting that we we could look for in the future. The key issue is that in each of these pieces, there is uncertainty. So when you emit greenhouse gases, some of those gases stay in the atmosphere, others go into the land surface in plants or the ocean uptakes carbon. And there's uncertainty in exactly how much stays in the atmosphere. Then there's uncertainty in how much that produces in global warming. There's uncertainty in how much that produces in local warming in another place. And then the relationship between that warming and an impact such as drought or heat related mortality. And our work started with increases in average temperature driven by individual countries' emissions, primarily or at least partly because the physical processes are well understood and the Mm. uncertainty is smaller than in other contexts. Once we start incorporating things like extreme precipitation that tend to be more variable or other more complex hazards, the uncertainties increase. And so we can do our best to integrate them, but we have to do so with the inevitable understanding that uncertainties are always going to cloud the picture to at least some degree. Right. And just to pick up on one of those points in there, because I am curious about this coordination effort between scientists and, say, a climate litigator. Chris, can you give us the story of what drove you towards this research and maybe comment on how you think the science community overall tends to get cues about the kinds of research that is needed? Absolutely. I try to be conscious of the way in which my and our science influences the world and try and fill gaps not only in the scientific literature, but in social contexts and political contexts as well. And so I think one angle for this is that has been the development of attribution science over the last five to 10 to 15 years. We've seen a real advance in our ability to tie individual extreme events to global warming. This has been a real foundational advance in climate science that just recently sort of made it into the IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change process with some of the pioneers of attribution science being really internationally recognized for their efforts to not only link 
global warming to human emissions, but then understand how individual events and individual impacts are being driven by global warming. There had been, and I think still remains, this gap in taking the attribution science that has been developed and tying it back to individual actors. And so there have been scientific papers and legal papers written about the need to take attribution science, which for a long time has thought about global warming generally, and tie that back to individual emitters to fill this gap in linking the causal chain from an actor emitting to a downstream impact. And so the attribution science field had really been the the field thinking about what can be done in the context of loss and damage, and then recognizing the gaps that, that remained and still remained in the context of an individual emitter's contribution. Now that we've published this work, we have chatted with lawyers and we've seen the reception that it's gotten on the domestic and international arena, and we hope to at least observe the ongoing conversations about loss and damage and litigation and co-produce our science, at least in some way, where we are observing what people are saying both in court and in the international arena, in negotiations in Egypt this year and in future COPs, and hopefully metabolize some of that information into forming how we think about the scientific gap that needs to be filled. It's a, as Karen said, it's an iterative process. It's not something where there's a direction to it. We do science in ways that just looks for the interesting questions that have to be answered. And I'm hoping to integrate some of these questions into the process by which we think about and formulate questions. Great. And Karen, can you, to to help wrap this up, give us a sense of what you think the path forward is for climate reparations litigation at the current moment. You talked a little bit about the kind of decentralized litigation that kind of helps create a global system of reparations in a disaggregate way. But what's politically right now on the table and what kind of science would would be helpful in moving that forward? Ultimately, I think that a global funding mechanism that's established and that can get the funds to countries when they need them is is what's essential. Although litigation, I think at this point, is an important piece of that just in terms of getting the norm of, of loss and damage of the need for reparation recognized. It's necessarily imperfect in that it's the one plaintiff that if anyone gets to recover, it's, it's the, it's the one plaintiff. It's not everyone who deserves to recover. So that being said, it's, it's difficult to tell, but it does seem that right now the momentum is toward this litigation really taking off. Cases increasingly begin to be filed. What I would like to see is more cases filed seeking damages. By, by Right now, by far, the vast majority just seek injunctive relief. The, the case, the per- Peruvian case that was filed in German court, that one I mentioned, there's one other one that is seeking damages. None so far at the international level have sought damages. 
so I do think that's that's really important going forward. And although I don't think there's going to be any one perfect case, what, what's important is that the, the litigation continues to move global climate governance in a more just direction, one that is really going to serve to res- support resilience of everyone in our change climate. And that in turn does require repair of loss and damage. So I, I think that the, the, the idea of liability, of responsibility for loss and damage, that just that norm that these cases have the potential to, to really establish and then potentially be a iterative process with the Paris Agreement is really essential given the history of the Framework Convention up until now, which has just failed to develop this critical piece of climate policy. I think the science is a necessary condition, but it's not a sufficient condition. The sufficient condition will be a question of what, I mean, if you're thinking about in terms of liability, what what courts are willing to do with as far as damages, we don't know yet. We have some very exciting and path-breaking judgments related to injunctive relief, that is uh, the obligation to to reduce emissions on the part of Shell. This, these ca- these cases are both out of the Netherlands, as well as the Nether- the government of Netherlands itself. But there aren't any rulings on on damages yet. From a lawyer's perspective, particularly with science like this, I think the arguments are are quite strong, and I think that potential defendants, whether they're countries or companies are recognizing that. And the arguments that they're making in these cases are essentially basically this idea of undifferentiated responsibility that, Mm. oh, we didn't cause the harm because if we had been out of the picture, then it still would have happened. Chris's studies defeat that argument, which, which is essential. But it depends on what the specific legal claim is, whether courts are willing to do it. But I do think that over time, as courts get more and more comfortable with climate science and applying it to facts, which they will have to, because that's just a reality, Mm. that over time we will start to see some victories. I just don't know when that'll be. I hope it's sooner rather than later. But there will also be some some failures. That's just the way litigation works. I think the distinction between scientific and political questions is a critical one. And I'm glad that we were able to establish such a clear understanding of how the way science can and cannot contribute to these questions. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, 
allies, and the aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahowell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Grout Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.